You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, it's a great joy for me to be preaching uh, on the first Sunday of Christmas Tide. The color is white now. We're celebrating the Lordship of Christ, the uh, centrality of Jesus Christ in the life of, of in our lives. And uh, I don't know, it's just the most wonderful time. This last Thursday night, when we had the uh, candlelight, uh, Christmas Eve candlelight service here, there's just something about uh, when this congregation sings uh, uh, Silent Night with all these candles. It was just such a moving thing. And I never, I never cease to be totally uh, amazed by that marvelous sense of, of joy that we were able to celebrate on Christmas Eve. Did you notice something, though, interesting about the narrative of Christmas in the book of, Mar- in the book of Luke? When Luke narrates the Christmas story, and tells of the shepherds and the angel that appeared to the shepherds, angels that appear to the shepherds. Then the shepherds go and, and find the holy family and find Mary and this and little baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes. Did you notice that in that scene and from that point on in the whole narrative, there are a whole series of prayers. Prayers seem to dominate what is the closing part of the nativity narrative. The shepherds, when they left, having seen this child, they, the, our English text says that they left glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. Then, uh, the, immediately after that, the text tells us that Mary, the mother of our Lord, cherished these uh, things that the shepherds had said and pondered them in her heart. What the shepherds had said to her, they, she pondered. That is another, that's a reference to meditative prayer, pondering in her heart. That's a prayer reference. And then eight days later, Joseph and Mary take the, the boy Jesus for his circumcision on the eighth day, according to the law. And when they bring Jesus into the temple, there is a man that's only identified in the Luke, in the Luke text as an, a righteous older man. He's not identified as a priest or anyone like that. Not an official. He's just a righteous older man. That when he saw the child, he put the baby, he took the baby in his arms. And then one of the great prayers appears in the book of Luke. Now let your, your servant depart. I have seen the Messiah. That was his prayer. And he thanks God. And if that's not enough, as soon as he leaves, there's a prophet. She's identified as Anna. She's 84 years old. She's a widow and she's a prophet and she sees this child and she also thanks God and praises him for seeing salvation in him. Those are all prayers. And it made me think of the importance of prayer and what does prayer mean for us? Look at how important it is at that moment in the, the narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. What an important thing prayer is. What about prayer for us? How do we understand it? How do we do it? Uh, how do we learn about prayer? You know, the disciples were very concerned to learn about prayer themselves, and we have a, we have a, 
a, a, a marker of that. In the book of Luke, in the 11th chapter, they come up to Jesus at one point and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Because John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. The rabbis all had prayers that they taught. As a matter of fact, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls are, tend to be mainly prayers. And so everyone has prayers. What about us? Teach us a prayer, the, the disciples say to Jesus. And so we're grateful that our Lord answers their request. And in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches how to pray. And so if you want to take one of the pew Bibles in front of you, I'm going to do a Bible study on a very interesting text where Jesus actually teaches us how to pray and has some surprising elements and some wonderful elements in it. And it's in the sixth chapter, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus decides to answer his disciples' request and teach them. And through them, he teaches us how to pray. This is the sixth chapter of Matthew. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us what it means for us today in the world we live in right now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, he, he starts right in. Look at verse 6. I mean, uh, chapter 6, verse 5, it's, he starts right in. Whenever you pray, and now he's going to teach them to pray, but he surprises you because the first thing he says after whenever you pray is to give a clear the air statement to tell us what he doesn't want us to do when we pray. It seems a little odd that you'd start a teaching that way, but his teaching starts with... I want to teach you to pray, but first I want to tell you what I don't mean and what I don't want you to do when you're going to learn how to pray. And that's how our Lord decides to start his teaching. Notice, whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand. The, the word love there is not agape, it's the word filial. It means they like. They like to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners so that they may be seen by others Amen, I tell you, they have received their wages. That's what the word really is here. They received their wages. Uh, I have to do a word study with you. The word that's used here uh, is the word hypocrite. It actually is a Greek word that's come straight into English. There aren't many of those Greek words where the word itself has come straight into English, not being translated, but literally the English word is is the same word as is in the Greek text. The word in Greek is a, uh, is a, it's a word that's a combined Greek word. It's upo, which means under, and kritikos. Kritikos is the word judge in Greek. Krino, judge. There's a whole group of judge words that are all under the Krino collection of words. And all wherever you see the word judgment in the New Testament, it would be this word kritikos or krino. Uh, but the root basic meaning of kritikos is weigh, to weigh. And that'll help you understand what judgment is in the Bible. It's the weighing of us. We're being weighed. Uh, is an interesting Supreme Court has, uh, with, with this mosaic background, has a symbol of justice holding a scale to weigh the sides in an issue. It's a weighing. 
And the word though, upokritikos, means literally, since upo means under, and kritikos means weigh, it means to weigh under or lightweight. So it means lightweight. And the word in the first century is not uh, pejorative, it's not a, a scandalous word. It is in first century Greek, in the Mediterranean world, it is the word for actor, for a thespian. And there were many, many people who were actors in the Greek, in the Greek dramas and in, in the stage. And the actors were described as upokritikos. In other words, there's the word hypocrite. It's not seen pejoratively like we're seeing it now. Within a couple centuries, the word became almost completely negative in its use in, in, in language. But then it just meant actor. I'll show you what it means. Supposing a Julius Caesar play was being performed that Shakespeare wrote in the last few years, and you're going to watch a Shakespeare play, and you're going to see the play Julius Caesar. I was in a Shakespeare group this year, and we read Julius Caesar. And there are several characters in that play who are real people in history. Julius Caesar himself, Octavian, who becomes Augusta, he's in the play, Brutus is a, a real person that's in, the, it's in that history, and also Mark Anthony. They're all real people in the history. Well, you watch a play and you see it on the stage, and one person is playing Shakespeare, one person is playing Julius Caesar, one person is playing Octavia, one person is playing Mark Anthony, but you don't say to yourself, that's Mark Anthony or that's Julius Caesar. It's someone playing them. It's someone imitating them. Or acting what he thinks they would, what they would say. But it, you're not fooled. As a matter of fact, a number of really marvelous films have been made in the last few years about the, uh, uh, the beloved queen, the queen of England, Queen Elizabeth. And some brilliant actresses have played Queen Elizabeth. But no one looking at these plays will say, oh, Helen Mirren is Queen Elizabeth. We know she's not Queen Elizabeth. She is an actor interpreting Significant, significant things about uh, the playwright's impression of Queen Elizabeth. So, in a, in a sense, the actor is lightweight. It looks like Queen Elizabeth, but she isn't Queen Elizabeth. Looks like Julius Caesar, but he's not Julius Caesar. Now, that's the word that is used here. And the interesting thing that our Lord is doing is he's not saying this in the way we're saying hypocrite now, which means phony or someone who's an artificial person or uh, uh, is, uh, is false or uh, someone that should be looked at, down on. But Jesus is using it as it would be used in the first century, actor. And he's saying right at the beginning, I want you to learn to pray, but I don't want you to pray like actors. I don't want you to pray as if prayer were an art form that could be rehearsed and planned and learned and you could become an expert in how to pray as an actor. I don't want that. So he clears the air at the very beginning with that negative. When you pray, I don't want you to pray like actors. So see the sentence that way. Don't pray like actors. They like to stand and pray in the synagogues. And it, by the way, notice he doesn't identify them as if they were Pharisees or as if they were Sadducees or if they were priests. He's just saying actors who like to be in the, in the public places, the streets, in the corners. After all, who wants to do a play in an empty Radio City Music Hall? You want some people there if you're going to do acting. So they like to be where the people are, to see them in the street corners, so they may be seen by people.
Amen, I tell you, they have received their wage. Jesus is not looking down on it. He is saying, that's what actors do. That's not what I want you to do when you pray. Prayer is going to be an amateur event. And Jesus gets ready to teach you prayer as an amateur event, not a professional event. Not something that if you learned really well, you would have a very good prayer and you'd get answers to your prayers that nobody else would get because your prayer was an expert prayer. In other words, from the very beginning of our Lord's teaching on prayer, there are no expert prayers. He just rules it out. I don't want you to polish up your prayer vocabulary so that you can do it well like the actors do when they play a great role. No, but no, what he says. But whatever, whenever you pray, go into your room. By the way, the word in Greek here is your private room. That's why some translators said your closet. But it's actually private room. Go into a private room, into your private room, shut the door. Notice, by yourself. This is highly personal and highly individual now. And pray to your father. It's interesting, isn't it? To your father, who is in secret. And your father who sees you in secret uh, will reward you. Uh, in other words, Jesus is saying you can go into the room and pray to your father. You don't have to be introduced. Notice he doesn't say that you need a priest to intercede. You don't need a prophet to intercede. You don't need to confess your sins to pray. You will later realize you have to confess your sins, but not now. You don't, you just can pray. You can just pour out your heart to your father and you don't have to be properly introduced to your father or mother. We know that from childhood. The child doesn't have to be introduced to their parents. You simply have a right because of who you are to speak. And notice what is also taught about the father. What's taught about God is that he can see you and he can hear you. Paul Tillich made a big point of that as one of the proofs of the existence of God. The, the one who created the eye can see. The one who created the ear can hear. Uh, that becomes an argument for the existence of God. Something that is there that it's made us is able to see. If he made the eye, he's able to see. If he made the ear, he's able to hear. Our Lord himself is saying that. He hears you and he sees you. And now you can, you can pray and you can say what's on your heart. Now, I do have to give you one more word though. I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm miffed at the RSV, the Revised Standard Version Bible, because they did a, a, a thing that I think is not good to do in translation. They have two different Greek words here, but they use the same English word for each rendering within one sentence. And that isn't fair. They should alert you to the fact there are two different words being used, and so they shouldn't be the same English word. Notice. Whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, the actors. They, they like to stand and pray in the synagogues so they may be seen by others. Amen, I tell you, they receive their... Now here is the word mistho, which is the word for wages. They receive wages. An actor, after all, has to be paid. They're professional. Now, but whenever you pray, go into your room. You're going to be an amateur now. Shut the door. Pray to your father. You get a chance to speak to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will... Now, this is not the same, this is not the word misthro that's used here. It's another word entirely. It's apodidomai. And apodidomai, this rather complicated word, is an earthy word. 
And it is translated in the lexicon, in the Greek lexicon, with the English word answer. He will answer you. Uh, but that's, even that is not exactly the idea. The literal translation of apodidomai is he will get back to you. He'll get back to you. You pray, he'll get back to you. That's not a reward. That's not reward. It's that he will answer you. He'll get back to you. And that is prayer that's taught immediately by Jesus. It's different than reward. And that's why I don't know why the RSV uses reward, reward. The King James made the same mistake. Reward. The actors get a reward. Now when you pray, you'll get a reward. I'll tell you the reward you get is that the Lord will get back to you. And uh, that's not bad. Let me tell you a very strange prayer passage as an example of this in the New Testament. In Luke, the 10th chapter, we hear about two women that are dear friends of Jesus, Mary and Martha. And they had a party. And in the party, Jesus is speaking, and Mary is in the living room listening to Jesus, the teacher. And Martha is in the kitchen. This is a very famous scene. And Martha is in the kitchen, and she decides to pray to the Lord, to pray to Jesus. This is going to be a wonderful prayer to a certain point. But she decides to pray to Jesus. And here's what she says. You can read it in, in Luke 10, chapter 10. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, that's the way to prayer, the prayer should start. And we're going to learn that in just a minute when he says the way to pray is start out our father, the one who is Lord. Call him Lord. That's who he is. Father, Father, Lord. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? We call that a prayer of complaint. It's a good prayer. Uh, you have a right, in fact, most of the Psalms tend to be prayers of complaint. You have a right to complain. And that's a part of prayer. Uh, Martha is miffed herself because Jesus is supposed to be omniscient and know everything. And uh, he sees you. He's supposed to know everything. And yet, aren't, don't you, aren't you aware? I'm out in the kitchen doing all the work and Mary is just sitting around. And so she says to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself. And then the prayer goes south and becomes a bad prayer. Then she says, up till now, it's a very good prayer. And then she says, tell her to help me. Now the prayer is not good. Because Jesus is going to answer that prayer, no. Because in order to answer that prayer, he'd have to take away Mary's freedom. And you're learning from Jesus right away that there are limits to what you can pray. Uh, parents uh, sometimes would love to say, Lord, make my son good. And we especially pray this for sons-in-law. Make my son-in-law good or my daughter-in-law good or make them do something that I want them to see that they should do, which is in, it's for their, their own good. But Lord, make them do it. And the Lord will not answer that prayer. He'll answer it, yes. He'll get back to you, but he gets back to you with a no. Sometimes he gets back with not yet or wait, but here, no. And I can prove it to you. Our Lord answers uh, Martha. The answer is very affectionate. He does not scold Martha because after all, she was praying and she had a prayer. It's just that she needed an answer and he gave her the answer. 
Here's what he says to her. You can read it for yourself, Luke 10. He says, Martha, Martha. Now, in the Jewish tradition, if you say someone's name twice, that's a sign of affection. Is it that way in your family? When you say one of your kids' names twice, that's a sign of affection. Martha, Martha. He's not scolding her. Martha's one of his best friends. So is Mary. He says, Martha, Martha. And then Jesus is pastoral with her. He says, you are troubled over many things. Martha. But what Mary has chosen shall not be taken away from her. So he says no to her request. I'm not going to make Mary come and do something. She, her freedom is not going to be tampered with. There are rules that God follows. I've often said this to parents. You can't pray, Lord, make my kids good. Well, then what can you pray about your children? Well, my wife and I decided a long time ago we could pray this, and it wouldn't tamper with their freedom. We could pray, Lord, bring good people into our children's lives. That doesn't tamper with their freedom, uh, and yet it's a prayer God can answer and bring good people into our into your children's lives. But you can't say, Lord, make my son do this or make my daughter do this. And so Martha learns. But notice the prayer, She, the Lord got back to her. He answered her. And that's what prayer is. And Jesus teaches that from the very beginning. He says, when you pray, go into your private space, pray to your father, and say what's on your mind. By the way, that's why uh, when you think of children, they get to go and speak to their parents. And that's uh, why I always say children should be seen and heard in the family. Uh, some people say seen and not heard. Oh, no. Seen and heard. That's what Jesus is saying to about us. We're to be seen and heard. So I'm glad you can't pray because you haven't confessed your sins yet. No, no, you can pray even before you've confessed your sin. Because the Lord will pastorally help you to see your sins. Martha learned a lot about her sins when Jesus said, You're troubled over many things, aren't you, Martha? And by the way, Martha didn't get angry at Jesus. She ends up one of his best friends. You can see it in John's Gospel. No question about it. And so that's prayer. And then he adds one more thing. And when you're praying, do not heap empty phrases. Uh, don't, uh, don't feel that by the multitude of your words, you will be heard. Your father knows what you need uh, before you ask. So don't just say what's on your mind, what you want to say. You don't have to use lots of words. And then our Lord teaches a very short prayer. Some people are kind of stunned, surprised how short this prayer is. Because we have prayers in the book of Psalms that go 118 verses. And here is a very, very short prayer. It's almost like a doorway that you can enter in. And our Lord gives you that doorway. And it's a very brief prayer. Very few words. Here it is. So he says, when you pray, pray in this way. And this may surprise you, but the prayer then begins, Our Father. Because up until now, everything has been uh, totally personal and individual. It's you go into your room and pray secretly. You don't have to have people around you to do it. No priests are needed. No prophets are needed. No one else is needed. Just yourself. You can pray. And we're given permission to do that. That now, when he teaches us how to pray, he suddenly includes those around us. 
So the prayer he teaches that we're to use uh, after affirming our uniqueness, he then gives a plural prayer. The Lord's prayer is in the plural. Instead of my father, our father. I recognize at the beginning that the Lord is not only father to me, uh, but father to to a great multitude of people and and the one and the one who loves all people so pray like this our father in heaven hallowed be your name now this is a couplet these two are in the in tradition of hebrew poetry they repeat each other father uh, the eternal father that's what in heaven would mean eternal father hallowed or holy is your name the eternal father is holy his name so you're identifying the lordship of of the father then the second couplet your kingly reign come i agree with dietrich bonhoeffer the word kingdom here doesn't mean territory not your kingdom as a territory coming but your kingly reign is coming is now going to share the lordship of Jesus Christ as it extends in the earth. Your kingly reign come, your will, your decision be done on earth as in eternity. So what the prayer does at the beginning, our Lord wants us to pray for, uh, about the authority and the, the reign of the Father as a ground that's put underneath us that Everything is built on it. We're placed on that safe ground. You know, there is no bottomless pit. Some people say, well, there's a bottomless pit in the Bible, isn't there? Yes, in the 20th chapter of Revelation is the one place in the Bible where bottomless pit is mentioned. And it's for the devil. It's not for you. There is no bottomless pit for you. There's a ground underneath everything. And our Lord has made that clear, and he starts the Lord's Prayer with that clear, made clear. There is a ground underneath your life. I had a guy tell me one day that he had a big fall in his life, and when I fell, I hit ground, I hit bottom, and it felt good. It felt good to hit bottom, to hit. It happened to the parable of the prodigal son in the story Jesus tells about a boy that ran away from home and then everything went bad and south in his life. And then he hit ground and he came to himself and said, I'm starving. He came to himself when he hit bottom. It's not a bottomless pit, though. So that's very important. The prayer shows that the Lord is Lord of the earth. And there's the ground on which everything is. Then the first prayer after that is for our survival. I'm kind of glad that the first prayer isn't for something more spiritual. But the prayer is, give us today enough bread. Today's bread. It doesn't pray for cake. Give us today's cake. It prays for today's bread. Give me bread enough for today. It's the prayer for survival. It's the very prayer that our Lord puts into the mouth of the young prodigal son. Before he even thinks about confessing his sins to his father and to God, he says, I'm starving. My father's workers are eating more than I am. I need bread. I'm going to ask for help. So give us enough bread for today. By the way, in the early church, there were, there were church fathers that were not pleased with this prayer and felt that it should be improved. 
And they wanted to improve it by having this line put in. Give us today our super substantial bread. They wanted it more spiritual. Thinking more, if it was more spiritual, it would be better. It would please God more. That we would be praying for super substantial bread. But I'm grateful the early church never gave into that because our Lord didn't teach that kind of prayer. He is saying ordinary bread is good enough for you. Just bread. Then the next thing in the prayer is the prayer for forgiveness for the harm we've done. This prayer faces up to the harm we've done. Maybe Martha will be able to pray this prayer now, realizing that some of the things she said about her sister were harmful. That, but that's, that's for her to discover. But Jesus now puts that into the prayer. Lord, forgive. And by the way, the word forgive means let go. Let those things go. Resolve those. Uh, redeem me from those. Set me free from those. Uh, forgive my harm. Three words are used for harm. Sin, in part of the Lord's Prayer text. Debt is used in another part of the text. And trespass is used. So these three words for harm are used in the New Testament teaching on the Lord's Prayer. You have a right to use all any one of those three. Forgive us our sins. That's what we thought and what we did that was wrong. Forgive us our debts, what we left undone that we should have done. Forgive us our trespasses. That's more concrete. That's what we do that crosses over another person's right. So we ask for that. And then it goes on. And Lord, give me the strength to forgive those who have harmed me. That's the second half. And by the way, that prayer is very important because we're warned later in the Sermon on the Mount that if we don't pray that second half too and pray that the per those who have harmed us be forgiven, then we're left with sins still unresolved and holding on to them. Don't hold on to them. Let them go. And so it's a prayer to let go the harm that's happened to your life and the harm that you've done to others, the Lord will let go when you ask for his forgiveness. And then, finally, the prayer says, bring us not to the time of trial or temptation. Uh, the word for temptation is the Greek word pareo. Pareo, we get the word English word peril from this. The, to the time of peril. Peril that is so great because we're now being tempted to make bad choices, like the devil tempted Jesus, to make bad choices so that we harm ourselves by the bad choices we're tempted to make. And so it's a prayer, Lord, protect us from temptation, where we make choices that will be harmful to others and ourselves. And then I like my friend Dale Bruner's translation of the next line, snatch us from the evil one from all evil, snatch us. Uh, our Lord actually prayed that himself in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He said, Lord, protect. I don't ask you to take my disciples out of the world, but protect them from the evil one, from the devil. And by the way, the evil one is what's used in the actual Greek text. But we have probably correctly translated it, all the kinds of evil, the evil that comes from the devil and all the other kinds of evil, snatch us from evil. So those are the final prayers that Jesus teaches, these very short prayers. And then he adds a psalm. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Our Lord quoted from the Psalms, the book of Psalms, more than anything else in the Old Testament. And he loved the Psalms. And he quotes now the last Psalm that David ever wrote, just before his death and when he was committing his kingship to Solomon. And he said this, for thine, it's an inscription praising God. He says to, to God, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. That's First Chronicles 29. And our Lord quotes that psalm at the end of his prayer. So now we have the prayer with an inscription at the end quoted from the psalms. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, that's prayer. Now I want to ask you a question. Uh, Jesus has taught us how to pray. It's very brief. When do you pray? That's a good question. When do you pray? I like what G.K. Chesterton said. There are two times to pray. When you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. Those are the two times to pray. The... Uh, the, the shepherds prayed because they felt like it. They saw this. They heard the, the uh, I love this song that uh, Brian sang. They had this startling experience on the hillside. They saw the child for themselves, and they couldn't stop it. They just had to glorify and praise God when they came back to their work after seeing this child. And they were, that's because they felt like it. And there's a great time in prayer when you feel like praying, and you just do it because you want to do it. But what about when you don't want to do it? I think Martha's prayer is that kind of prayer. She's simply uh, burned up that Jesus is not more attentive to a problem that she sees, a justice issue. A lot of people say, I don't pray to God anymore because I don't trust him anymore because of injustice. Well, that then you don't feel like praying. Well, pray that then. Do what Martha does. Lord, don't you care? That's a legitimate prayer. Pray your doubts. Pray your fears. You don't feel like it? Do it. And see if he teaches you. And see if he says your name twice. Martha, Martha. Bill, Bill. Mary, Mary. You're troubled over many things. And then, maybe then, the good word will come to you and you'll learn. Who knows? Well, I'll learn. So pray when you feel like it. Pray when you don't feel like it. I wanted to write a poem a few years ago about prayer, but I wanted to write a poem where I didn't use the word pray in the poem. And then I got my answer from one of the most moving scenes in our Lord's ministry. In the 11th chapter of Matthew, Jesus uh, gives a wonderful invitation to us to come into his presence. And here it is. George Frederick Handel included this in Messiah, his great oratory, the, or, the oratory of Messiah. It's this line that Jesus gives in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, burdened, heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Learn from me. My burden is easy. And take my yoke upon you. Uh, my burden is easy and my load can be, can be carried. I love that opening. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But when I was doing a word study on that great text from Matthew, I realized the word rest is not used. Uh, 
Instead, in, in the language of the New Testament, the word is pause. I will give you a pause. I'll give you space where you can pray and then learn from me and take my yoke upon you. Bend toward my yoke. Put, and it's a shared yoke. The yoke I have, I'll share with you. And then you'll see that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you pause. I'll give you a space where you can pray. So I wrote a poem a few years ago, and I called it Such a Windy Place, because, uh, uh, and I put that in my title of the sermon today, A Prayer for Such a Windy Place. But here's what I wrote. It just has three strophes. Such a windy place to find the water and food that will last and give me time while dust and leaves, ideas and words blow constantly in my face. We all live, and if I could interpret my first strophe, we all live in windy places. Martha is in a windy place. She's got so many things blowing in her face. One of them is her resentment toward her sister. All those things. But such a windy place to find water and food that will last and give me time while dust and leaves, ideas, and words blow constantly in my face. And then the second stroke. How can I pause and think, wonder and ask, decide and do in such a windy place? And I'm using pause as my synonym for prayer. How can I have space where I can think and wonder and ask and decide and do in such a windy place. And then the third strophe. It takes a good shepherd with skill and will who loves his sheep on a thousand hills while we pause and think, wonder and ask, decide and do in such a windy place. Heavenly Father, thank you for prayer that you want us to pray as amateurs just to come in the room. We don't need to be introduced. You know us. And Lord, we then with just a few words can say what's on our hearts. Lord, teach us to pray when we feel like it and when we don't feel like it. And draw us into that place where there's a pause where we can wonder and think and care and decide. So, Lord, bless us, and especially as we look to this new year, make us, uh, give us the, the ability to pray uh, as we face a new year as your disciples. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.